welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Tibble. Russia remains scarred today by the humiliating experience of the 1990s, including a hyperinflation crisis that saw the ruble reduced to a fraction of its value, and daily struggles for bread in the shops. But this is nothing new. A major new book from Oxford University Press, The Ruble, A Political History, follows two centuries of Russian history by looking at the role played by its currency. The author of the ruble, Ekaterina Pravilova, is Professor of History at Princeton University and joins us from the States. Welcome to the bunker, Ekaterina. Uh, Thank you for having me. Now, you've previously written books on topics like law and property, but what first interested you in the idea of looking at a country's history through the lens of its money? Well, um, I'm a historian of Imperial Russia, and in my field, there's a set of questions that every historian tries to answer. For instance, why did Russia remain an autocracy? How did the Russian Empire avoid revolutions throughout the 18th and 19th century? And why did the revolutions in 1917 happen the way they happened? And uh, I'm trying to answer these questions from you know, the point of view of property and the point of view of money. Just think about contemporary situation. What is Russia today? It is an autocratic country, and the war in Ukraine is one of the consequences of Russia being an autocracy. Can you imagine a situation when Vladimir Putin does not control Russian financial system or does not control a monetary system and the, the central bank? Can we imagine a bank of Russia being independent? Of course not. And Russia was an autocracy before 1917. So I tried to explain what was the role of money in maintaining the regime of autocratic power until the revolution of 1917. And there's a real tension there between uh, the way that the ruble is presented as being this very autocratic centralist thing about the Russian state being mighty and the sort of language of liberty you talk about in the book. Uh, yes, exactly. And um, this is, was one of the favorite ideas of Russian monarchies, that this trust of Russian political system consists in the, the power of the autocrat to define the value of, of Russian currency, of Russian rubles. And this idea certainly contradicts all economic theories, because money is something that is first of all connected to the market. And the Russian monarchists and who spoke about the mightiness of the state, they thought that market is something very wrong, right? Because it's it's spontaneous and that it's impossible to control. So in an autocratic state, money belongs to politics. It belongs to the political system. It, it, it's part of the system of governance. And the czar has to have total control over it. And uh, of course, this is a very topian idea that they entertain because in reality, Rubal was constantly in financial troubles. You mentioned hyperinflation. And uh, this was indeed the fact that Russian money looked like any other currencies in the 19th century, with the exception that it was constantly in troubles. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about the process of how the ruble first came about, um, how and why Catherine the Great came to uh, bring about it. It was the Azignats system originally? Yeah, so Catherine in 1769 introduced big money uh, called Asignatsi or Asinias. And uh, this was a very interesting, very radical reform, which tells a great deal about Catherine herself and the system of autocracy. Mm-hmm. 
uh, we think sometimes about Katrin as being like a ruthless autocrat, which is certainly true because she expanded the Russian Empire with the power of the army and the monarchical power. And uh, money was one of the means of war. So by introducing Arsenias, she created another mechanism for conquering and expanding the capacities of the state. Of course, there was there also another economic component to it, because think about uh, economy, which only was based on coins. For instance, to transport 1,000 rubles, one would need to hire a horse, <laughs> because coins, copper coins or silver coins were extremely heavy. And Russia was a vast country and it was expanding. And of course, having all the metal money was just uncomfortable, inconvenient. So creating paper money was a way of improving economy, but also improving the possibilities for waging wars because Russia was fighting the wars against Turkey. And think about it again, bringing all of these coins all the way through the Russian domain to the southern border. Mm. And uh, so there was this rational component. But at the same time, Catherine had mentioned she was a ruthless autocrat, but she was also an enlightened monarch, right? So she absorbed this idea of enlightenment, and mm. uh, Russian money had both components to it. Uh, this idea of rational military and economic power, and at the same time, the political idea uh, which was enlightened in, in Roy. Because when Ketchum introduced paper money, she said, this paper money is a debt. And just think about it, the autocrat, the emperor saying that I'm borrowing money from it's my own subjects. Because she even pledged, she gave the promise not to print too many assignments. Uh, and even the assignments, they look like promissory notes, as if the, the emperors just borrowed the money from its own population. And this first idea that in the 19th century became a political blasphemy because the political ideology of autocracy changed. And in the 19th century, nobody could say the Tsar borrowed this money from its own population. It's completely impossible. So this was a first transition that we can see was happening in, in this political philosophy mm. uh, of money from idea of money is that to the idea that money is a part of the political philosophy Yes, and that idea of change is really very interesting because very often when we talk about money, we think of this as a static thing. You know, you think about Roman coins, you think about antiquity that hasn't changed. But actually, money is changing in its type and in its function all the time. And the ruble has changed forms quite a few times. Exactly. And we, uh, in, in Russian case, we can always see the tension between what is changing. Economy is changing, society is changing. Uh, there is a social change going on with the states and the new social classes emerging. Russia toward the 19th century becomes more and more like a normal capitalist country with, of course, significant agrarian sector, but also industrialization is on the way. So this is the change mm -hmm. that certainly affected the role of money. But we can also trace the change um, in the history of fresh mobiles through in design. I said already that Russian arsenals mm -hmm. that kept introduced, they look very modest. Mm. Uh, there's very simple design, almost no embellishments. And then in the 1830s, uh, the design was changed. Then we can see like the court of arms and all of the symbols of Russian dynasty and, and Russian empire. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I was really interested on a design point around the sort of cultural significance of the ruble, because this isn't just simply something functional or even decorative. This is something that crops up in pop culture. I mean, you mentioned that in the book that it's even um, referenced by Pushkin. You know, the idea that it, it, it's something that's a common token, it's a common bit of everyday experience for lots of Russians, and it means different things to different people as well. Yeah, so money in the ruble is sometimes the figure even like characters in stories and in novels and in poems and Pushkin, you're right, Pushkin wrote about it. Pushkin interestingly wrote about uh, two kinds of money, uh, paper money and coins. So the coins had this quality of dignity, of honor attached to them. Uh, at the same time, Pushkin wrote about paper money as being something really humiliating because in the 1820s when he was writing, Paper money was in a very bad shape because Russia experienced a long inflation and uh, Russian assignees were losing their value. So uh, speaking about this cultural and emotional component of money, I wanted to mention that in Russian language, there is a word, the mm-hmm. store. It has two meanings. One is value mm-hmm. uh, and another is dignity. Right? So these two words, interestingly, are very connected. And money, the rubles, also had this double quality. So uh, when the ruble was falling, and it was often the situation after each war, there was a financial crisis, and uh, some people would argue that this is very humiliating, what, what is happening? Why we cannot exchange rubles for other currencies at the normal rate? Right. So this is not only about economic matters. Of course, e- economy was very important and an ability to buy things for, for money with support. But there was also this ideological component of feeling humiliated. Now, that's fascinating. And I'm struck very much by um, the way that in the 19th century in the West, there was very often a sort of narrative of the worthiness of a country tied up with its currency, and particularly with the idea of gold. I mean, there was a fascination with building up a gold standard with gold reserves and having uh, that as a sort of measure of national worthiness. And um, in Russia, they had a slightly different take on that. Correct. Uh, For Russia, the idea of joining the gold standard meant at least two things. One is the joining the club of European Western nations, because the gold standard was like a seal of approval that the country is normal. We can trust it, we can develop uh, economic exchange, and it can be included in the, the club of civilized nations. So while for liberals and economists, this was a very attractive idea, for a monarchist conservative, this is a nightmare because they was thinking as, as soon as Russia joins the gold standard system, it would lose its financial sovereignty. Hmm, that's fascinating. Because all of this capitalists from the West will come and rob Russia of all its riches. 
And uh, there was another component to it that um, what is called starter? This is a mechanism that works independently of the government. So the idea of the gold standard was uh, seen as synonymous to constitutional reform. Mm. Because if there's a gold standard, the Tsar has no control over the value of, of the Mopols. Yes, it's anti-authoritarian. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the gold standard was this seen as, as something that encroaches upon the absolute power of the monarch. Therefore, there was such a strong resistance to the coal standards in Russia. When it was introduced in 1897, the architect of this reform, Sergei Vita, made sure that Russian gold standard would be different from the gold standards of, let's say, France or, or England, of course, because the Tsar would still have, the government would still have control over the gold user. And I was very interested, um, moving forward slightly to the early 20th century, um, a lot of books in World War One, written in recent years, have moved away from focusing on gains and losses on the battlefield. Instead, they focus on the cost of the war, the cost in human beings, the cost in materials, the financial cost. And your book very much looks at the Russian currency crisis as a key factor in World War One and in the Russian revolutions. Um, how did that work? Well, Russian financial policies uh, during the World War One were not very much different from the financial policies of its allies or from Germany or, or Austria-Hungary. Mm. So the Russian government was doing all the right things. The financial crisis of World War One was uh, tremendous, mm. and all countries except for England had to suspend uh, the exchange of the currencies. So what were the options for the Russian government to maintain this financial situation to finance the war. One was to float loans, which indeed, another was to print money, and the third was to organize domestic loans. And in all of these measures, Russia followed closely what the Allies were doing. Mm. There's one difference, and this difference is not in financial and economic matters, but in political matters. The underlying was a political crisis, the crisis of trust. And the World War I revealed the absence of trust between the government and society. Just look at this one particular episode when all governments in German World War I tried to collect the gold from its population. So they started the campaign asking citizens to bring the gold rings, the earrings, the medals, the snub boxes, whatever, all the gold coins, um, so that they, they, they could maintain the, the national currencies. Mm. And the Russian government followed this script, and they also asked Russian citizens, Russian subjects, to bring their gold possessions. And this campaign failed, not only because Russian people were poor or they didn't have gold in their possessions, not at all, but because people did not trust the government. And uh, this was a major problem for the Russian government in the war, how to fight the war when there is no financial patriotism whatsoever. So what happened in 1917 was uh, the revolution, February of 1917, was a result of this growing economic crisis, but also the crisis of trust. Mm. When society and the government could not find common language, they were so much apart. And what happened to the Russian people during World War One is one of the symptoms of this deep political, cultural, and dialogical crisis in, in the country. That's really interesting because um, there's certainly a sense 
during World War One that the battlefield gains, the battlefield losses in terms of land are not that substantial or that important. What is substantial are the rupturing of economies, the mass uprisings and mutiny. And when you get the, the lack of trust into that um, and, and the role that the currency actually plays in that, if, if people no longer trust their money is worth something to go to the shops with, that's phenomenally important. And you get that afterwards, of course, because looking at the Russian revolutions, and I, I use the plural because obviously there are counter-revolutions after that, um, there's hyperinflation in the 20s, there's Lenin's new economic policy. I mean, it, is, is that a turning point? It was a turning point, and there was an interesting experiment during the so-called war communism, when uh, there are different ideas circulating. Perhaps there where Russia can get rid of money altogether because the communist economies, some Bolsheviks imagine, does not need money at all. But um, the government could not even come close to this experiment. There is a financial chaos, Joe, which. Essentially, the government lost all control over its economy and finance. Mm. Nobody made taxes. And of course, there was a, a hyperinflation that uh, Russia had never experienced before. So the government could not collect any income. And the printing money was the only way of financing its existence. So when in 1921, the civil war ended and it was possible at this point to think about reconstruction when he started designing plan for financial economic reforms. Interestingly enough, he thought back about the Russian imperial experience and these uh, celebrated financial reforms of the Bolsheviks in uh, 1822 and that resulted in this appearance of the gold Chirbonis was in fact in many ways, was an emulation of the Sergei's bitter gold reform of 1897. Sometimes they even emphasized the fact that this is a return to the normal pre World War One situation. Mm. So it is like a strange zero-one, right? This socialist society with the imperial uh, money. So you asked before about the change, and and I said that there was a change, but there was also persistence. And this is one of the elements of persistence. When um, uh, the government, the Bolshevik governments perceived money as a political mechanism of restoring control over country, over the economy, and over the territories that sort of run away because uh, imperial uh, space uh, certainly fell into different parts and restoring authority over different parts of the empire with the means of the ruble was also central to this reform of the 1920s. Right. And picking up on that, um, because the study is obviously hugely broad-ranging. I mean, the book spans from the 1760s to the 1920s. What are the lessons today on Russia and its currency? Um, Politics, culture, and the currency all seem to be quite interlinked. I I cannot speak about lessons, perhaps, but uh, uh, (laughs) historians, I'm pretty sure, and speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure many historians share this view that we have this belief in this time when we constantly have this feeling of deja vu. It's not only because Putin's system is a essentially an autocratic system when he intentionally emulates some of the imperial models and, and ideologies, but also throughout the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, the government, an autocratic government, was the main enemy of its own people. 
uh, in its own economy. Mm. I was trying to show in my book how many times people like the technocrats in the government try to restore Russian currency, put it on the core stamp, it's just a normalized fin financial system. And then there was another war and all of these plans mm. were immediately destroyed. So what is happening today is the war that is happening, it's not only horrible in terms of the human or cultural losses, but it's also financially and economically irrational. It goes against all ideas of economic well-being, mm. development and progress. And this was happening also in the 19th century when the idea of empire and the idea of economic progress was completely incompatible. And uh, I think that if we look at the contemporary situation, we can see it clearly how the control over economy and finance is key for maintaining political control of a country, but it's also um, the system of, of dictatorship and destroys Russian economy from inside. And the parallels, I think, are very illuminating. We can read the history of, of Russian bureau money to understand what is happening um, today. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you, Ekaterina. The book, The Ruble, A Political History by Ekaterina Pravilova, is a fascinating and creative read, and it was published just last month and is available from all good bookshops. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition for your delectation. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue. Not only Podmasters staples like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and Origin Story, but also our newest offerings like We Are History and Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker was written and presented by Seth Tavo. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.